Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of The Shift the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. If you're in your 40s or 50s or 30s or 60s and feeling a bit, what next? My guest today is just the motivation you need. Seven years ago, Deborah Francis White was sitting in a bar with a friend when they came up with a crazy idea for a podcast. You might have heard of it. It's called The Guilty Feminist. Now about to celebrate 100 million downloads, I know. Its catchphrase, I'm a feminist but, has become part of internet lingua franca. And the stand-up comedian, podcaster, activist and screenwriter has never been busier. She's written a best-selling book of the same name, launched a whole host of spin-off podcasts under the Guilty Feminist banner and there's another book on the way. I don't go into that room anymore, rooms like that, thinking, how can I demonstrate competence at the expense of my own brilliance? And how can I come runner up so the men respect me and like me and want me back again? I go in to play my authentic game and my best game. And they can think what they like. Deborah joined me to talk about feminism, being diagnosed with ADHD in her 40s, the way we change our behaviour in male-dominated spaces, exfoliating your guilt, and the doctor who told her that post-menopause, women's skin ages in dog years. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for coming on The Shift, Deborah. It's lovely to meet you. Delighted to be here. Where are you? Office, kitchen, what is it? Or have you got a special podcast? Well, room? we did used to have a little dining room that has been colonised in the pandemic and never reclaimed by Tom Selinsky, producer of The Guilty Feminist slash my husband. And so this room now <laughs> is Tom's office, effectively. And it is piled high with recording equipment. So if I just need to pop in and record something quickly or do a podcast like this, there's always a spot at the end of the dining room table. Dining rooms are a total luxury anyway, aren't they? Yeah. So before we talk about the guilty feminist, I want to talk about how little Deborah got from there to here. You were born in Brisbane, weren't you? And you were adopted. Is that right? That's right. Ten days old, I was adopted. What was your childhood like pre-Jehovah's Witness? I mean, it was very uh, beachy. We lived in a beach town in Australia, very outdoorsy. I was quite an indoorsy kid. I was a big reader, as was my mother, as was my family. But the atmosphere in the town was all about surfing and being on the beach. And so I always used to read books about London and used to think, oh, that's where I want to live. I want to live where all the stories are told. So when I got here as a grown up, I was like, oh, my God, it's like coming to Narnia. It's real. It's all real. (laughs) You know, where I grew up, you were 
totally judged on your ability to play football, netball and run fast. That's right. Yeah, and same, I was same, same, same. Absolutely useless at that. Oh, I couldn't do any so of that. No. But I was a good debater and I turned that into a competitive inter-school sport because you only really had any cachet in my school if you could beat other schools at things and those things were always sports. I could neither run nor catch nor throw but I could talk fast and I could be funny and so I got my cachet doing that and we made it a spectator sport rather than something that was dry and uh, that that I think was probably my claim to fame at school. So were you always a funny kid? Was humour always a thing? I think so. I discovered my funniness doing debating because I was third speaker so I could write really fast while the opposition was talking and I could come up with three to four minutes or whatever it was meant to be of really funny takedowns of what they were saying. So I didn't prep anything. I think I had to do a short summary of what my team had said, but I used to keep that really short because I wanted to do all the gags. And I just could do it. I don't know. I just discovered I could do it. And my brain works really fast. Turns out I have ADHD. And so that's what makes me someone with a very linear brain, linear and original I was very academic, but only at the subjects I liked. Again, ADHD, you Mm. focus on the things you love. You don't care about the other things. I think I was probably uh, slightly innumerate, you know, in the way that I don't know what it's called when you have the numeracy version of dyslexia. There's a name for it. But I think I had that because I was really behind in maths as a small child. And I caught up enough in high school that I was fine. But I really struggled with it. And I was preternaturally talented at English because I remember the teachers used to read out my creative writing and my my sentences and things in front of the class all the time. I know I loved it. I was like, see, good at something. Now, my school, actually, there was cachet in doing well at school amongst the girls. I don't remember how the boys felt about that or the boys' response to that. I just remember amongst the girls, if something of yours was given special praise, there was a cachet in that for sure. People did want to do well. And I remember feeling very proud of that and that was important to me. And I remember winning creative writing competitions as a kid and thinking, this is what I'll do. So you're always pretty driven. When were you diagnosed with ADHD? How old were you? Oh, it was recent, like in the pandemic. I found that the symptoms of ADHD, which I'd always managed and masked before, thinking I was just a bit of a numpty and wasn't able to cope, Mm. really exacerbated. And I thought, there's something not right here. And isolation brought them to the fore, but they were always there. And a new understanding that something was wrong. And some comedians who are friends of mine said, we think you've got ADHD, we've got ADHD, we've been diagnosed. And there's an incredible, incredibly high number of comedians who have ADHD, women anyway. I I don't know so many male Mm. comedians, but I think it's a job that women with ADHD can do because there's not a lot of admin. And I see comedians all the time, both male and female, putting on WhatsApp groups and Facebook pages. Oh, I've just written down Brighton in my diary tonight. Am I meant to be doing a gig for anyone in Brighton? Or, <laughs> or oh God, I'm in Manchester, but I'm also meant to be in Portsmouth. Can anyone cover me? And <laughs> I think when men do that, people just go, oh, he's a comedian. You know, he still lives with his mum. Or what's he like? Mm. He needs someone to look after him. When women do that, people go, oh, something's wrong. Diagnose it, pathologise it. It's She needs medicine because the day-to-day standards for women are often higher. Yeah, I was listening to you on another podcast and I was listening to you talking about playing poker and about the perception that it was it was a men's game when it wasn't necessarily a men's game, it was just only men in the room. Comedy strikes me as one of those things until recently, which you've played a really large part in. It's one of those things that felt like a men's game. I mean, that story, it was me in 2011 at the Adelaide Fringe Festival 
And the gang I was hanging out with because of the flat I was sharing and the producer I had was all men. And they all started disappearing off at night after a certain time where we had been hanging out. And it turned out they were all going off to a poker game. When I asked if I could join, because I love poker, I'm good at poker. They said, oh, it's it's a men's only game. It was in a Spiegel tent at like two o'clock in the morning when everything was shut down. Mm-hmm. And all the techs were guys. So these guys said, well, we're the artists. We're, the, we're these lily-livered, non-masculine comedians talking our way into the a game run by men who dismantle tents and put up scaffolding and understand electrics for a living. We we can't be bringing women in. Like, we already are on the edge of this. We're barely allowed in ourselves. How could, how could we possibly start smuggling a woman in? And that's a really interesting thing, because unless you feel central, you can't invite anybody. Anyway, I razzed them until one of them relented and said, all right, I'll ask. I remember it's two o'clock in the morning. We're in a, we're in a park which is where the festival is, a park with all these Spiegel tents and the like. He goes and comes out, all right, I've talked your way in. The implication was, don't embarrass me, okay? I yeah. got you in as a woman and now now you have to demonstrate that you're as good as the guys. So I need to be competent above all things. That's what I'm proving to these guys, that I know how to play. I must be competent above everything else. I don't need to win. I need to be competent. I need to show I'm, 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 I'm capable because that's what they doubt. If I play with a lot of bluff and bluster and have a big win, they'll be like fluke. If I play with a lot of bluff and bluster and I, I go out, they go, she can't play and therefore women can't play. Oh, so I'm yeah. playing on behalf of my whole gender. Remember, this is 2011. This is 13 years ago. I wouldn't do this now. But at the time, that was very much my strategy. And I remember I was, I'd come out of a show, like it was a cabaret show. So I remember I had a black dress on, gold wedge heels and a bowler hat so I couldn't have stuck out more <laughs> I was there I was you know I was I thought right I'm gonna play like my husband because he plays a very safe game and I know that nobody playing with Tom would think he were he was incompetent or didn't know how to play no matter what happened and so I played Tom's game and my chip started to mount and mount and mount until I became the chip leader which meant that I was coming first in this game and people were being eliminated around me. Men were being eliminated around me, left, right, centre. All the other comics went out. So it was just me and the techs. And the guy whose game it was, who was called Digger, big guy, looked like a pirate, lots of tats. Uh, he went all in and he said oh, and he said something provocative to me, which was like, "You are you going to call or are you going to fold like a girl or something like that? So I, at that point, did go all in. And I lost. It was a tournament. So it was first, second, third prizes. I came fourth, but out of about 15, 16 people. And I was so pleased with myself. I'd played a perfect game. I showed I was in the top four, but crucially on my first game, didn't walk away with the money because then I'm not likable. And I remember Digger saying to me as I left, you're welcome at my game anytime. And I was like, yes, what I won was respect. And it was a better strategy than coming first because if I'd come first, they would have been like, who's she? You know, because I've seen men yeah. really enjoy women coming second and then they can mentor them and go, she's all right. She's pretty good, you know. But if you beat them, they often will be like, oh, I don't think so. Like, who do you think you are coming in here? You're some kind of hustler. And there's a bit of aggression. So I thought I've done really well. On the way out, he hazed me uh, by telling me to run when the automatic sprinklers were going to go on rather than off so that I was fully wet. <laughs> and then I, that was your price. Yeah. But no, it was actually a mark of respect because that's what I'd do to a bloke. So I thought, oh, my God, I've done this perfectly. And I was so pleased with myself. And later, when my feminism developed, and I will be honest and say society's feminism developed, 
throughout mm, yeah. the teens from 2012 to, say, 2016, I more and more looked back on that with a different lens. And different levels number one was, how did those guys, those comedians, determine that that was an all-male game? And I rang my friend who talked me in. What made you think it was an all-male game? Is that what they said? And he went, no, no, they never said to that. He said, I don't know. I just, there were only men there. And so I assumed it was. As far as I know, Digger was always happy to have women. He just didn't know any who wanted to play poker. I've no evidence that Digger wanted to keep women out. I projected a lot of stuff onto Digger because he was a big guy with tattoos and a beard and gruff and pretty silent. And when I sat down at the table, said, oh, I said, thanks for letting me play, Mr. Digger. And he said, your money's as good as anyone else's. So I thought, oh, my God, he thinks he's going to take all my money, which, to be fair, he did. Mm. Um <laughs> but I I don't have any information on what Digger thinks about women or women in poker or whether maybe at other in other festivals it had been half and half or more women than men at times. Who knows? Who knows? But I'll tell you who, who doesn't know, us, because we never asked. Those boys, understandably, because they felt on the periphery, looked around the room, saw who was there and made an assumption. And that happens a lot. If your committee, if you're board is all male, people will assume it's an all male space and women will most likely feel unwelcome in the room and not apply for entry. And that's the same for any identity at all, whether that be an all white room, whether that be an all non-disabled room, gender conforming, straight, etc, etc. And the other things I learnt were (laughs) my strategy based on my experience to come runner up and get respect over money was me allowing this power structure from my past to determine Mm -hmm. what I would do in this present time to inhibit myself or hold myself back. Um, And it's not like I tried to lose. I don't mean it like that, but I was so thrilled when I came forth. And I think a man who didn't even notice it was an all-male space would be like, damn it, I nearly came third and I would have got some money out of the pot. If I hadn't gone all in, I could have won that whole thing where I I was congratulating myself on how likeable I was. And that's not me being pathetic. That's what I've learnt from life. When they say to women, oh, you should be more confident, what they're saying is you should discredit and forget every experience you've ever had. Forget about all the other rooms you've been in where you've been talked over or where somebody's Mm. being undercut you because they were jealous. Forget about that. Pretend that never happened. It's not bad advice, actually, because that's what I do now. But it's not realistic to tell women who've had a lifetime of marginalisation in a very male-dominated environment like comedy to be more confident (laughs) because confidence Mm. is the product of our experience. So now I don't go into that room anymore, rooms like that, thinking, how can I demonstrate competence at the expense of my own brilliance? And how can I come runner-up so the men respect me and like me and want me back again? I go in to play my authentic game and my best game. And they can think what they like. They can make their own assumptions and their own conclusions. And I really do believe now, if I am representing my gender accidentally and without my permission because I'm the only woman in the space, being my true brilliant self will tell its own story. When do you think you reached that position? Oh, the guilty feminist. That you, it was the guilty feminist that did that. Because yeah. I have to talk about feminism every single week. I have to interview all sorts of incredible women. I had to learn about intersectionality. I had to sit with 
some of the most dynamic, brilliant women and people of minority genders in the world. And I have learnt and I've cultivated. And the thing is, our brains are very plastic. And what this podcast has done is it has forced me each and every week to say I'm a feminist but and exfoliate ridiculous guilt. So at mm. the top, if people don't know, if listeners don't know that I have a thing where I say, I'm a feminist but and comedians and I confess our things. So I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march, popped into a department store to use the loo, got distracted trying out face cream. When I came out, the march was gone. And so we confess stuff like that. Everyone laughs in the audience because it's a live show by the lockdown. And we all go, oh, we all do things like that sometimes. It doesn't matter. Or sometimes the audience go, oh, and then we go, maybe it does matter. And then work on that stuff. But still put it on the table. Yeah. Build muscle, pick up the weights, you know. So have you ever had one where the audience has disapproved? Yeah. Oh, yeah, loads. Yeah, loads where the audience go, What do they disapprove of? I can't think of a specific one. But if it's a double, you know, like... Sometimes if there's something about using your sexuality in a situation which is already mm. quite domesticated or you know, people will, I mean, they're not really judging you, but they'll they'll be like, a oh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I'm a feminist, but it's one of the things that really stuck mm. about the guilty feminist because it was that instant buy-in that kind of, it tapped straight into the guilt that I'm not good enough, that... Literally every woman, even young, cool women still have. When you came up with that line, was it like an intuitive, instinctive thing? Were you looking for... Yeah. What was it? How well, did you come up with it? It was because at that point I was having different conversations. It was 2015. I started having different conversations with my female friends. And I think up to that year, we'd usually got together to talk about our love lives or our careers or our personal lives and what struggles we personally had. And those conversations rapidly started shifting into conversations about inequality, gender inequality. And what we saw as more important, broader injustices than just our petty, why didn't I get seen for that? Or why did he say that? You know, it, it started to become a bigger, bolder, more interesting like purposeful conversations. And one of the people that I was having these conversations with was a young Danish comedian who I'd recently met called Sophie Hagen, who was very interested in feminism. Mm -hmm. And she and I started saying things like, yeah, I'm a feminist, but... And we started to confess these other feminists that we could see in the public eye seemed so sure, so strident, so excellent at this. And we were like, mm, we're not sure we're very good at this. And then Sophie said, we should start recording these conversations because I think other people would relate. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I was like, I don't want to do a podcast that's in a studio or over lunch or in a flat. I only want to do it in front of an audience. We're women in comedy and I, you know, I want to go out there on stage and do stand up. And so that was the beginning of it. I'm a feminist, but it was a man who decided to make it a cold open, which I think is a lot of the success of the show. My husband, Tom, was editing it and he put it as a cold open. And Tom said, trust me, when people hear these one liners, it's every single thing they need to know about this show and who you are. What does it matter if your name's are Deborah and Sophie at this point? You're going to say it as soon as the music's done. Of course, it's important who you are, but it's that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is I'm a feminist, but one time I got on an aeroplane from Cape Cod to Boston, a light aircraft, and the pilot asked me my weight in front of everybody so he could determine how much fuel to put in the plane so we could safely make the crossing. And I panicked and lied by 20 pounds, endangering my life, that of the other passengers and a border collie that was along for the ride. And when we got over the water, the tiny little plane, only six of us on it, started rocking the way those tiny planes do. I said to my best gay friend, David, he did the trip all the time. And I went, David, I've lied about my weight. Oh, my God. And he went, don't worry, darling. They put on 10 pounds for women and gay men. Uh, and <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, I'm alive. But that confession so many women just laughed and went, oh, my God, I've done these things. And I keep them to myself because I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I feel like I'm not the good feminist because the good feminists love their bodies. The good feminists would never do that. The good feminists don't even know how much they weigh. And so somebody saying that is a release and a relief because I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying it's a thing and I've done it, but I'm still a feminist yeah. and I still am entitled to take up space. I'm still entitled to speak up at that meeting and say, hey, this isn't okay. I'm still entitled to go down to the House of Commons and protest, though they're taking my rights away to do that very rapidly. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. well, you still can. Well, we still yeah. can. So, yeah, I think Tom was right to put it at the top. Sophie left after nine months, I should say. And then since that time, that seat has been sat in by a pool of incredible comedians. And what I love about that is the diversity of the double acts I'm able to pull off. You know, Jess Foster Q is the mother of a small child. Cindy V is the mother of a teenager. You know, those things are different. <laughs> and yeah. Cindy V acts like a mum to me in the double act. 
whereas Kima Bob will act like a little sister to me and then I get to be the low status one or the high status one or the, you know, come on now, uh, you know, one or the or the naughty one. or And those things are wonderful for me comedically and wonderful for me in terms of what I can express as a feminist and incredible for the audience because they get a broad spectrum of representation in terms of identity, but also in terms of hearing about a woman who can't have children, a woman who doesn't want to have children, a woman who's got three children, a woman who's got teenagers, kid children already grown up. Like there's all sorts of interesting things there. And that's just around parenthood, never mind all the other interesting ways people are different. Sounds really obvious, but you get, you know, a totally different experience from talking to a woman about menopause and ageing who's got five children and three grandchildren versus one who hasn't, like me, got any children. Mm-hmm. It's Everybody's experience is totally different. And if you've got those revolving guests then you've got more opportunity to get all those experiences. 100%. There could be someone come on who's 22 and someone come on who's 65, you know, and yay, those life experiences are different. Someone who's spending their days on dating apps and somebody else who's, you know, like, oh, I couldn't think of anything worse, you know. God forbid. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Do you you think that the guilty feminist would have happened if your plan A to have children had happened? Oh, I mean... One never knows what might have happened going through that sliding door, but I doubt it because butterfly wings. I wouldn't have been free to hang out with Sophie at lunch. I wouldn't have maybe be having those same conversations if I'd been trying to get my next Radio 4 show away while changing nappies and dropping someone at playgroup and all of that. So I suspect not, but hopefully I would have done something else that I really was proud of. And I would have a child that I was really proud of. So it wouldn't have been a a worse alternative. It just would have been different. But I am very glad that it worked out the way that it did because I did try and have children and it didn't work out. But I was always a little bit nervous of it, if I'm honest. I was always nervous about what I might lose. And I think the driver in me to reproduce was just not strong enough. I would have loved to have adopted. It is extremely complicated, that process, and can be Mm. very heartbreaking. So... I have not done that either, but I can only conclude having a baby or a child is not as important to me as other things because of the choices I've made. I notice that people go after the things that they really can't do without. And we know what's important to us at the end of the day. When I've gone through periods of my life where I've said that fitness was important to me, but I have not moved, I can only conclude it wasn't as important as all that. Because if I was that important, I would have done it. I can only assume comfort... And rest was more important because those are the things that I did was just go, I can't be bothered. I'm just, I could go to yoga, but actually I'm just going to put the Netflix on. And watch Netflix. Exactly. So therefore comfort and being entertained or whatever. And that may be valid. Like there's nothing, I'm not saying, I'm not putting a judgment on that. I'm saying if you're going through a period like that, maybe just say to yourself for some reason at the moment, home comforts or being in your nest is more important to you than exercising. So don't be distressed about that. When moving is the most important thing for you, again, you'll start doing it and you'll know it is because you'll start doing it. And often that lack of judgment is the very thing that makes me go, oh, yeah, I I think I will go to yoga today. It just takes the pressure off, the guilt, the constant guilt Mm. about everything. And that's part of what the guilt of is about. It's about exfoliating the guilt, not carrying shame around like luggage. Mainly women of pretty much all ages are just lugging that around. And while we're carrying that, there's all those other things that we could be doing that we aren't. Yeah, 100%. And it is limiting it's just so energy draining thinking, oh, I should be doing this. 
Like you're better off just taking a day off and going, I'm really going to revel in this day off than spending all day thinking I should be working, I should be doing that. Oh, I wish, really wish, oh God, I've missed the dry cleaners now. God, am I not even going to go to this yoga class? What am I like? Oh, I'm useless. You're better off going, do you know what today is? I get the feeling it's a real duvet day. And do you know what? I'm going to do all of that another day. And I'm really going to enjoy this. And it may be you get to then two o'clock in the afternoon. You think I've really enjoyed this. It's been a lovely, oh, I've really just, I feel so much better for it. Do you know what? I've got enough energy now that I will go out to that that yoga class. I might go to a really gentle one. I might go to a yin one. And then you're more likely to do it because you've not expended all the energy feeling guilty. Are you good at that now? At kind of cutting yourself slack? No, but I'm telling myself this as I tell you this. Uh, sometimes, at least I do it sometimes now. Yeah, because you are the woman who just told me you were going to get on your peloton and then you were going to go back to writing and then you were going to write all night because you had a deadline. That is the case. Yes, that is true. Yeah. But this is this is a midweek, deadline week situation. I'm yeah. trying to get better at going, if I'm so exhausted and I'm not doing it anyway, lean into that and sleep for a couple of hours and just give yourself this moment so that you can restore and repair and get going again. Otherwise, you've not done the writing and you're exhausted. It's very counterproductive. Totally. So Guilty Feminist is on, what, 95 million downloads now or something obscene? It's 100 million now, which is really lovely. I mean, you've really played an important part in the way women in comedy are, are viewed, haven't you? Well, I think the show and the space has, definitely. I'm sure of that and I am thrilled by it. But I see myself as being in the very fortunate position as to shine a light on conversations, talented individuals, brilliant people who should have been being showcased elsewhere and for no reason, absolutely no good reason, weren't. And now they are in some cases. They're now doing telly and they're all over the shop. But rightly, but rightly. So the guilty feminist has become something much greater than how it started. It's become, you know, a platform for all kinds of diverse voices, yeah. for want of a better way of putting it. So have you had any menopause symptoms yet? I have not. And in fact, recently I met a doctor at a party who said, I can tell you're not menopausal because of the collagen in your skin and your jawline. He said, when women hit the menopause, they age every year, seven years. So how they used to age. Right. He said they age in dog years. I was like, oh my God, shut up. Can you imagine that? A doctor at a party said to me, women age in dog years when they've had the menopause. Can you imagine how furious I was? But he said to me, I can tell that you are, you're not menopausal because of your jawline and the elasticity of your skin. Isn't that, isn't that a depressing thing to hear? It's really depressing. Did you ask for that or did he just volunteer it? Uh, of course not. No. When, when would <laughs> no, I say that at a thought. party? I'm just, being, yeah. I'm just being young and glamorous and spectacular at all parties. But I guess the conversation because of feminism or whatever must have gone that way. And he said, and he just diagnosed me at a party and said... I can tell from the elasticity and the collagen of your skin. So that's something to look forward to. Yay. Being a woman, isn't it great? Right. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, when you get there, it is, I'm a feminist, but hell, I have to warn you. It's like, I'm a feminist, but I take HRT. I'm a feminist, but I hate my flesh duvet. I mean, you've just, you've got it all coming for you. I hope it's a way off yet. And also, I think everyone just thinks, well, it's not going to happen to me, don't they? I just feel like we all... Yeah. Well, I think we all just think age won't happen to us. And I think if I continue in that, just living in that deluded paradise, maybe it won't come for me. That's the best way. All right, I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end. What's your emotional age? 
26. Why 26? I feel like I've got this, it's all ahead of me vibrancy. I'm in my 20s. It can all still happen for me. I still carry that somewhere. I mean, thank God I'm not. But in terms of my emotional energy, I think probably 26. Give us a book recommendation. Maya Angelou's memoirs, but all of them. Like a lot of people read, I know where the cage mm. bird sings and goes, oh, yeah, I've read that one. No, keep going. I really believe that everyone in America should be made to read it three times because I think she's just such a, a literary, compelling, compassionate writer who allows you to really see things through her eyes. She's just phenomenal. I mean, everyone in the world should read it three times, not just in America, but particularly in America. Yeah, no, they are amazing books. Amazing. Actually, on that note, who's your old bird role model? Ooh, I mean, I've got a couple. Gloria Steinem came to my show in New York and I look to her and I think she is still in the prime of life. And I think she's in her mid to late 80s. And she is just such an extraordinary yeah, human being. So, and on a personal level, Emma Thompson is such a wonderful woman. She really does care and she really does invest in the women around her. She believes in you. She encourages you. And she gives back in an emotional and creative way that I think is quite rare. That's one that's personal and that's one that's at the moment on my mind because of Roe versus Wade. What advice would you give younger women? People believe what you tell them. You tell the story of you. You walk into a room and you tell them how central to events you are, how included you are, how much you belong with your body language, with the way you walk into the room. And I say that factoring in, of course, white privilege, Oxbridge privilege, all of those things. But I remember turning up at Oxford and going, I'm so intimidated by this. I've just left a cult. I'm Australian. I left school quite a few years ago. All of them have just done their A-levels and all their study skills are right on top. But I know that if I walked into the room like I was meant to be there, there was a different attitude towards me than if I walked into the room apologetically or like I was an imposter. And I wish I'd known earlier how much your sexiness your belonging, your ability to be seen and heard was down to that. People leave what you tell them. Number two, prepare to be angry because there are times when it is going to be unfair. Get good at being angry. Find a good friend where you can be like, I need to tell you something because I need to share this anger. A good friend who will go, I hear you, I see you, I believe you. You've got three days with which to deal with this anger we're going to go and have a walk in the park. We're going to go to a boxing class or something where you can punch stuff. We're going to, you know, have some drinks and go fuck them all, whatever. And then we're going to go back to telling the story. And the other thing I'd say is find good collaborators. A lot of it is about who believes in you, who's in your corner, who you believe in, whose corner you're in. Collaborate, look after each other. There's so much opportunity now because the internet, for all its evils, has democratised finding an audience and finding a customer base, finding a clientele, finding your activism peers and and soulmates. So do it. What's the superpower? Um, speed of thought. Without that, I there's very little I can do. I do sometimes think, what if I had an accident and I lost that speed of thought? Because everything I can do that anyone's prepared to give me money for is based on that. Lateral, lateral thinking at the speed of light. That's literally the only skill I have, but I use it in a different, I use it a number of different ways. That's it. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> that and a little bit of jazz hands, a little bit of rats. worth hands. having. Oh, I can make an audience feel good. I know I can make a room of people feel good. And That's lastly, it. how many fucks do you give? 
Oh, it depends on the day. Uh, zero to one million. I don't believe anyone really doesn't give any fucks. Like, and in fact, Brené Brown says, if you really do give zero fucks all of the time, you're a sociopath. She's like, everybody yeah. cares what other people think. And you should care what other people think. It's just, who are the people on your judging committee? And I saw her give a, I did an event with her actually in Nashville once. Um, and uh, she was fantastic. And the, I haven't heard, she probably has said it since, but I haven't seen or heard her say it since. She said at that live event, you should have a square inch of paper and the people on your judging committee should fit on that paper. You shouldn't care what everyone thinks. Pick people with integrity, with taste, with morality, with class who you think, yeah, care what you think. So I've got, I, I took that on board, but I've got different square inches of paper for different things. Like, I'm not going to send my screenplay to my mum and go, what do you think? Because she's going to say, I didn't really understand it, darling, or I thought it was too sweary. So like, you know, but I do care what my mum thinks of my integrity. Do you see what I mean? Get your yeah, square totally. inch of paper and go, I care what these people think, but not these people. And what Brene Brown says is if they're not out there doing anything, but they're criticising what you're doing, she's like, I don't have any time for people who sit on the internet and go, you're not doing it right, but they're not putting themselves out there. And I would say that to people. If you are not making a movie, putting together a panel, putting together, you don't know how hard it is. So by all means, give constructive feedback on how it can be done better, because without that, we cannot have progress and we cannot change the world. You've got a deadline. I have. I'm writing a book called Six Conversations We're Scared to Have, which is in part about the way that we speak to each other and the flammable way that we now in our community groups either come for each other or are stalling progress and positive ways that we can go forward as someone personally who has massively benefited from the me too movement for example which was all about mm. individuals on the internet coming together and saying enough times up etc i i i'm coming at it from a very progressive left-wing place but also going let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater but the baby does have to grow up um that's that's the that's the purview of the book let's see Great, and that's out next year. Yes, I hope so. Thanks for coming on, Deb. Thank you for finding time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Lovely to meet you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift with Sam Baker each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift, please consider becoming a member. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! 
Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.